Good to see everyone here this morning. Now let me get this straight. Chris Benjamin leaves us here in cold, wintry, blustery Fort Smith, and he goes to Panama City Beach, Florida, sunny Florida, on the beach, and he pretending to go with the LFC, the college group, but we know what he's, why he's really there. But my phone this morning said it was colder there than it was here in Fort Smith. <laughs> yeah, it was 28 there when I looked, and it was 30 here. And they had a freeze warning and a wind chill advisory, so enjoy, Chris. <laughs> So here we are, two weeks already into 2018. How are those New Year's resolutions going so far? How are they playing out? Have already some of them gone by the wayside? Have they gone by the wayside by sundown, January 1st? You know, it's events like the New Year that always bring a sense of a new start, a new beginning, a a restart, maybe a renewal. Many of us, dare I say all of us, sometimes are seeking to be renewed, to be refreshed, to be restarted, redeemed, recovered. Whether it be in the home or in the heart, who doesn't like to remodel from time to time? question remains, though, to whom or to what will you seek this renewal? Sometimes it may seem that the situation is so bad it's not redeemable. Even God cannot or will not redeem things. We'll consider that in a little bit. In this day when News is instantaneous. 24 hours a day, there are news channels, news websites, news talk radio, social media. There's an overabundance of news, and it's usually all bad. You know, my first advice would just to simply avoid reading that stuff. But that's not always possible. But the news is bad. Bad news, bad people, bad situations, no hope. You know, the world's always been populated by imperfect people, but it just seems to be worse nowadays. You know, some are resolved to do evil, and they're seeking to do that every chance they get. But many question Where's God in all this? Can God, or probably more likely, will God choose to do good in a bad situation? Will he choose to make something good out of a bad situation? Given all that's going on in our world, it's easy to become cynical and jaded and and to feel that, yes, there is no good in the world. Nothing is redeemable. There's nothing, nothing useful in anything. Kind of like Ecclesiastes, all is meaningless. Now we may technically say, yeah, God could redeem someone or something, 
but will he? Or why would he? We'll answer that question in a bit. You know, Americans like a good story. We all like a good story, an intriguing story, maybe a mystery, or maybe a good conspiracy theory, or a story involving some type of intrigue, or scandalous details. Maybe some type of crime has been committed, or some prominent individual is involved. Do you remember the trial of O.J. Simpson? You remember the white Bronco chase on the L.A. freeway? I watched it. Did you? Oh, yeah. Maybe you're old school and you like to show, like, unsolved mysteries. Robert Stack, you remember that show? Or the FBI files or mystery detectives or the first 48 hours and so on. It seems that our culture, we have a fascination with stories that are filled with drama and suspense and and scandal. I'll have to admit, I used to enjoy watching a show called City Confidential. That was a documentary on the A&E Network. I think it ended about 10 years ago. But each episode, a different city was featured and a community was singled out. And a high-profile criminal case was presented and a crime had occurred and it was being investigated and rather than being straightforward and procedural they always began with giving you some information about the city a unique feature of the community and I like the show because the show analyzed not just the crime but also the impact that the crime and the investigation and the legal proceedings had on that community Remember that for later as well. Part of the success of that show is, was a wide variety of, of cities, from the smallest town and, or village to the largest urban areas. Newberry, South Carolina, Saddle River, New Jersey, Little Rock, Arkansas, St. Charles, Missouri, but also large cities, Boston, New Orleans, Miami, Los Angeles. I mean, when you saw some of the titles, who who couldn't resist? Deadly Odds in Biloxi. Faith and Foul Play in Salt Lake City. Nashville, Murder in Music City. Dallas, Arsenic and Old Money. Little Rock, Politics of Murder. And so on. What about this episode? Yet a wealthy, powerful, influential man, he desires the wife of one of his employees. While that employee is out of town on business for his boss, the boss commits adultery with the man's wife. The wife of the employee becomes pregnant. And the boss tries to cover it up to avoid responsibility, and when that doesn't work, he conspires with others to have the man killed. Then he marries the now widow of the man he had killed. So it sounds like a a scandalous, high society, high intrigue type of episode, doesn't it? Or maybe you like me, you you picture a sleepy southern town where where folks are gathered on their front porches and they have their flies water in one hand and a glass of cold lemonade in the other and they have beads of sweat 
going dripping down their head, and they're talking about this scandal that's racked their town. No. His name was David. He was the king of Israel. He was the man that Scripture said was a man after God's own heart. He was God's personal choice to be king. He was directly in the lineage of the Messiah. He was renowned. The New Testament writers referred to him as our father David. Bethlehem is a city of David. Jesus himself referred to himself as the root and offspring of David. But he was that man that did all of this. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 11, or you may just want to listen as I read. In the spring at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and he walked around the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. And the man said, she is Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. She was purifying herself, and then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I'm pregnant. David sent this word to Joab. Send me Uriah the Hittite, and Joab, Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all of his master's servants and did not go down to his house. David was told Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents. My commander Joab and my lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house and eat and drink and be with my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to him, Stay here one more day, and tomorrow I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And at David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants, and he did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. And in it, he wrote, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is the fiercest, then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah in a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. And the men of the city came out and fought against Joab. Some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Joab sent David a full account of the battle. He instructed the messenger, Now when you finish giving the king the account of this battle, the king's anger may flare up and he may ask you, Why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know that they would shoot arrows from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerob-Besheth? Didn't a woman drop an upper, upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? 
Why did you get so close to the wall? If he asked you this, say, Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. The messenger set out, and when he arrived, he told David everything Joab had sent him to say. And the messenger told David, The men overpowered us, and they came out against us in the open, and we drove them back to the entrance of the city gate. Then the archers shot their arrows at the servants from the wall, and some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. David told the messenger, Say this to Joab. Don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. And after the time of mourning was over, David had brought her, had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. David's at the zenith of his success. He had solidified his kingdom. He had won battle after battle. He was the most powerful king in the known world at that time. He was a renowned and beloved warrior throughout Israel. He was the greatest leader Israel had had for 300 years since Joshua. And spiritually, the nation was in its best shape it had ever been in under David's leadership. But success can make one vulnerable. You know, when you haven't made it to the top, so to speak, and you're struggling, you're always on guard. But when you've made it, you're inclined to let your guard down. You start believing in yourself rather than distrusting yourself and trusting in God. And Satan is just waiting to hit you or hit me or, in this case, hit David. When you lower your guard, success can bring many dangers because David, he was a powerful man. If you read in 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 16, even after being married to Bathsheba for 20 years, and when David's on his deathbed and Bathsheba goes in to see him, she bows before him. Who was there to confront David? Joab, the commander of the army, stood up to him on occasion, but he was not a godly man. Nathan, the prophet, later had the risky job of confronting him. But obviously that wasn't an easy task. None of David's servants that he sent after Bathsheba dared challenge his behavior. Although they knew what was happening. The people thought he was king. And he could do whatever he wanted to do. Who would dare challenge the king? It was almost too late at that point. What David needed was somebody, someone, to, who spotted his disobedience to come to him and say, David, I love you, and I have to tell you what you're doing here. I love you too much to not allow you to live like this. You need to deal with your failures and your shortcomings. But David didn't have anybody on the same level as him to hold him accountable accountable before God. Other dangers can arise. Self-indulgence. Text tells us that spring had arrived and David had <clears throat> should have gone out with his troops. He should have accompanied his troops, but he didn't. 
He probably thought that Joab can handle this. I can stay back here in Jerusalem. I deserve a rest. I'll sit this one out. You know, successful people sometimes rationalize that they don't need to, uh, they've sacrificed and they've worked hard to get where they're at, so they need to enjoy themselves. They're in the habit of getting what they want, when they want it, and how they want it. And it can be a crack in the dam as it was here for David. So we encounter David here in 2 Samuel chapter 11. He's a sitting duck. He has a long history of unchecked behavior. He's at the pinnacle of success, but he's not accountable to anyone. And he's decided to indulge himself by withdrawing from his place of duty And these cracks below the surface begin to show. The problem was David simply forgot who made him king. God did. Human power and prestige and position and prominence mean nothing in God's eyes. There's only one king of kings and only one Lord of lords. And the haunting words in verse 27, in my opinion, sums it all up. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. And I thought to myself, wow, no kidding. Well, how does it feel to be confronted about something? Not much fun, is it? I can remember when I had done something wrong and I was confronted by my mom and my dad. It was not much fun. How does it feel to be confronted by someone who is a prophet of God? You know, something we may have done or said or not said or not done and we're confronted by someone we know, someone who's close to us, it hurts. It's hard. It's painful. But what about when you're the king? You're the most powerful man in the land. Yet David's power is worthless. It's futile. When he's confronted with the truth of his wrongdoings, his power and prestige is worthless. Let's continue on. Chapter 12. The Lord sent Nathan to David, and when he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food. It drank from his cup, even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, and but the rich man refrained from taking his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the man, for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man, and he said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, that man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over, because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. You are that man. 
This is what the Lord God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you. I gave your master's wives to you. I gave you all of Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despise me and you took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and I'll give them to one who is close to you and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. What you did in secret, you did in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die, but because by by doing this, you have shown your utter contempt for the Lord, the son you have born will die. Even more painful than the confrontation, though, are the consequences. David paid a huge price for what he had done. David and Bathsheba's child dies. David's own son, Absalom, conspires and rebels against his own father and would have killed him if if he had had the chance, if he had listened to some of the advisors, dethroned his father for a short period of time. But God spares David's life. But another consequence of this, David's son, Absalom, his own flesh and blood, His own son is killed, and David is devastated. He reaps bitterly when he receives the word of Absalom's death. And in reading later in in 2 Samuel chapter 18, David says, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, if only I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. That's a man who's paying the consequences for what he did. But what's important is how you respond to those consequences, how you respond to what has been done. David returns to Jerusalem as king, but it's not over. One might think, okay, sadly the child has died. David has survived a coup. The people have reaffirmed him as king. Okay, it's time to move on. No, David has some work to do. And it involves his relationship with God. Because you see, if you'd left it there, there's this unreconciled, unredeemed action and behaviors. But David, knowing who he was and where he came from, didn't leave it there. David wrote out his confession. He wrote out his confession to God and the confession of his sins. We know it as Psalm 51. David wrote this after he had been confronted by the prophet Nathan. Here are some of the words. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. 
against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. You were right in your verdict. You're justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness, even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in the secret place. So please cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all of my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me but restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. That sounds like a man who knows what he's done. That sounds like a man who is contrite, a man who is broken, and a man who knows that the only place he can turn in all this is to God and a man who knows that when he turns to God, God will be there with his open arms to take him back. David is the author of this psalm, and he, and he, and he wrote this in response to the sins that he had committed, and he's desperate for forgiveness. He's desperate to be restored, to be restored in a rightful place in his relationship with God. David committed evil and he tried to cover it up and he had an innocent man killed yet he was known by God as a man after his own heart and that reminds us of God's willingness to forgive because given all that God is in the business of reconciliation he is in the business of of restoration. As we read previously in, in uh, chapter 12, Nathan spoke the truth to David. David listened and responded. And he said, I've sinned against the Lord. Those were his own words. And the dialogue there shows the importance, even though it wasn't exactly the same, it shows the importance of Christian friends. Sometimes it takes those closest to us to help us see the true nature of our actions. Healthy friendships that allow for a genuine and authentic accountability are important. And that's what David had. And he's appealing for God's forgiveness. He asked for God's mercy. He asked for God to blot out my transgressions, to wash away my sins, to cleanse them. Not only a cleansing from sin, but a cleansing from within. You notice he said in verse 10, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. He's asking God to purify him. Help him live a changed life. It's not as if God didn't know about David's sins. It's not about if he doesn't know about our sins. Of course he does. He could perform summary judgment any time. Be done with it. But he longs for transparency. He longs for that relationship. He longs for you and I, and in this case David, to come to him. To seek his mercy and his forgiveness. 
David shows us that we can come to God and lay our sins directly before him. And David even admits in verse 3, I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before him. In other words, I remember, I know what I did. It was my choice, my choice alone to rebel. David recognizes this. But he says, I know God will forgive me. And as we had mentioned earlier, he is renowned throughout the New Testament as our father David. Direct lineage of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. David says, I was living under a kind of internal pain. And he's asking for God to no longer remember his sins, to completely forget them forever. And that's exactly what God will do. That's how much he loves us. That's what the cross was all about. Once David had been restored and renewed, redeemed, recovered, whatever term you want to use, he wrote this psalm to be a hymn of worship for God's people to sing, to appeal for forgiveness. We didn't read it, but in verses 13 and 14, he said, My tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. My mouth will declare your praise. David concludes this psalm with a focus on sacrifice. And he says, My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. David was completely broken. And he had done more than you and I or most people would ever conceive doing. But he knew the only thing that he could do is bow before the one who put him where he was in the first place. Bow before the king. And that's what he wants us to do. You know, it's a time for renewal. It's the beginning of a new year. It's a time to think about who we are, to, to uh, inspect our lives. Maybe it's time to, for a new beginning for you. Maybe it's time for a new beginning with your family. You know, in a minute we're going to sing a song and, and use that time to renew yourself. Maybe you need to talk to someone about it. There'll be elders in room 100. There'll be elders down front. There'll be someone close to you. Maybe you need to talk to someone close to you. Have a conversation with them. Maybe you need to start your walk today by being baptized into Christ. You know, this year, 2018, you might be seeking that fresh start. Maybe you're seeking a spiritual renewal in your life. Maybe you're seeking redemption in some way. Regardless of what it is, just understand one thing. God loves you, and he has a place for you. You know, you might be like I was once. It took me years to understand this. I thought that the church was made up of perfect people, living perfect lives, And I was on the outside looking in. Not true. Never has been. 
church is made up of imperfect people living imperfect lives. But all of us are redeemed and renewed and recovered by the perfect Savior. His name is Jesus Christ. If God is willing to use someone like David, that guy, really? Murdered? Had someone murdered? Abused his office? I mean, doing things he would be in jail in our country? If God's willing to use someone like him to fulfill his purposes, he can use all of us. God never took back his endorsement of David. He didn't say, oh, I missed on that one. I'm done with you next. No, he redeemed him. And after all of that, if God is willing to renew and redeem and recover someone like David who did more wrong than most would ever conceive doing, then he will most assuredly renew, redeem, and recover us. He can, he will, and he did. If we can help you this morning, you can come forward as we stand and sing.